Hey, good morning, everyone. It was just a few years ago that I hit mythological and legendary status, and so it is right for me to preach on Father's Day. I'm just kidding. My authority is the word alone. Believe me and trust me and do anything in the sermon only insofar as it is a faithful teaching of the word of God. As you probably know, Kyle preached his best sermon yet, in my opinion, last week on Psalm 90. Well, because my family's going to be on vacation for the next two Sundays, John is going to preach next Sunday on John 9, and Grant is going to preach the following week on Psalm 25. I, I didn't, I didn't want to go back to Genesis for just one week, and so this morning I'm going to preach a, a topical sermon on a topic I've, I've wanted to address for some time now. As we continue to creep out of the COVID cave, that's what I call it anyway, and all the challenges that it introduced, like isolation and sickness and, and death for some, challenges for unity within the church, theological discussions. As we come out of the COVID cave and all the challenges it introduced, as we're still reeling from a pretty contentious election and some racial tension, as we've spent a good deal of time in Genesis and all the hard situations that it produces, I've noticed that a lot of things are fighting against our joy. They're, they're fighting to challenge the joy that God has made us for. Therefore, it seems good to remind, it, seem, it seemed good to remind myself and all of you that God has called us to grace. Hear this. God has called us to, I'm going to unpack this. That's the point of the sermon that God has called us to and provided us with a joy that these things truly cannot shake and certainly cannot take if we endure them in faith. I'm going to preach on joy this this morning, so smile, all of you people of God. Along those lines, I once asked one of my oldest and most well-educated friends, or at least most educated friends, how he made decisions. His answer was quick and to the point. He said, I ask myself what will make me most happy. His unapologetic life mission and moral code was to pursue his happiness, and the key for him was wherever it might be found. Well, most adults that I know would try to couch that in at least a little bit more virtuous language. I think it's pretty safe to say that everyone wants to be as happy as possible, as much as Possible. I think that's a universal human experience. I think God made us for that in a certain sense. We were made by God to glorify and enjoy him forever. But as thoughtful Christians, we don't ever stop. Grace, don't ever stop with just asking what is. So to say that all people want to be as happy as possible might be true, but that's just what is. As thoughtful Christians, as faithful followers of Christ, we never stop with what is. We press into what ought to be. And so here you go. Here's the questions of the day. Does God want us to be happy? Does God want you to be happy? Some of you more naturally are. Some of you more naturally are not. Does God want you to be? Does he care about what makes you happy? Does he care where you find your happiness? Is there such a thing as too much happiness? Is there a difference between happiness and joy? These are some of the questions we'll consider this morning as we look at, hold on to your seats, 14 biblical principles. I was surprised by that. I didn't expect that. I didn't come in to the week thinking, I just can't wait to 
give these guys 14 biblical principles on happiness. But as I did a survey of the, the use of the terms associated with happiness in the Bible, there's probably more like 16 or 17, but I, I combined them into 14 for your sake. They're quick. They're just going to be intros to all of them. Every one of them is a sermon. But this morning, we're going to get 14 biblical principles on happiness. And, and here, here is the banner that flies over all of them or the, the, the whatever it is that they all hang from. Here it is. You ready? If you get one thing, if you get one thing out of this entire sermon, get this. God invites him to join us. The, the overall teaching of the Bible on joy is that God invites us to join him in his joy through Jesus Christ forever. So if you get one thing, get this. God invites us to join him in his joy through Jesus Christ forever. Let's pray. God, that's, that's a lot. 14 things all under one banner and a banner as glorious as this is that you, you invite us to join us in your joy through Jesus Christ forever. Help us to, to hear your word this morning. Help us to see it. Help us to rejoice in it. This is not meant, like Kyle said last week, just to be understood, although I pray we understand it. It's meant to ignite the joy for which we were made. You, you mean us to be a joyful people. God, I pray that the sermon would be a means to that end, but that it would be rightly uh, placed, rightly praised. It would come from the right source and to the right end, that it would have the right intensity and the right duration. God, I pray that every ounce of joy that we have would be pleasing to you. I pray above all that you would help us to see that the kind of joy in our lives that pleases you most is the kind that is found in you. I pray that these things would be plain. I pray that I'd move quickly enough to get through all 14 in a non-burdensome way, but, but slowly enough that we would understand each of these and see them as the clear teaching of your word. Again, above all, God, I pray that we would leave here today a more joyful people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me say it again. God invites us to join him in his joy through Jesus Christ Forever. I'm going to say that several more times. We see this again through 14 principles, about to unpack, but these 14 principles fall pretty neatly into three broader categories. Here, here are the broader categories. The nature of joy in the Bible. What, what is it like? What is it? Second, what is the source? Where does it come from? And lastly, what is its lifespan? How long does this kind of joy live? What is its duration? We'll begin then with the nature of joy in the Bible and with that a definition. Always define your terms. I read several this week. Some were better, some were worse. But it seems to me that in the end, the best way to define the kind of joy that's in the Bible or to understand biblical joy is to recognize that in general, there's a bunch of terms that the Bible uses synonymously. Let me give you some of them. Uh, in general, all of these terms are connected. They mean the same thing. Gladness, happiness, blessedness, satisfaction, contentment, and joy. I've heard sermons, I've seen sermons, I've seen devotionals written on the difference between happinesses of this earth and joy is deeper. There's a way, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. There's a way in which that's true, but not 
Not, not biblically. Biblically, all these words mean almost the exact same thing. They're used almost interchangeably, often in the same exact verse. And so let me say that again. What is biblical joy? It is gladness, happiness, blessedness, satisfaction, and contentment. But because of what I just said, I'm going to use mainly the word joy in this sermon. Because in spite of the fact that in the Bible they're largely synonymous, there are differences in our, in our culture between these words. For instance, again, the words happiness and joy generally have different connotations. For most people, happiness is more fleeting and joy is more enduring. We would do well to let the Bible define our terms for us, which we will, but to avoid confusion. I, I mostly use the word joy in this sermon, but it could be, it could be any of those terms. The Bible uses them all over the place. I really would encourage you to get a concordance out or use your phone and search any of those terms this week. It would be a great use of your time. So if joy is gladness, happiness, blessedness, satisfaction, and contentment, that's already the first principle. What does the Bible say about them? Here's the second. God is a joyful God. God is a joyful God. You hear sermons and they're right, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He is He is more than just joyful. But Grace Church, hear this and and remember this and feel this deep in your bones. He is never less than joyful and he is never not joyful. Let me say that again. Our God is a joyful God. He is more than that, but he is never not that and he is never less than that. To be happy then, you and I, to be joyful then, at least as I'm going to unpack it, is to be godly in an important sense. No joy, you're missing that aspect of godliness. We see this in passages like Nehemiah 8.10, which says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God is a joyful God. He is He has great joy in him. Likewise, we see it in Psalm 35.27, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. He is a God of delight and, and amazingly enough, oftentimes in us, his servants. We see this in John 17, 13 in the words of Jesus. He says, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus, the son of God is full of joy because of sin the joy of God is sometimes muted in our experience. More on that later, but God is eternally and unwaveringly a joyful God. Whatever joy we experience, therefore, whatever joy you experience is rooted in God's very nature. That is an awesome truth. And as we'll see even more as we go on, Grace, God invites you to join him in his joy through Jesus Christ forever. Do you know that about God? Is that constantly ringing in your ears even when life is hard and and even as you see sin take its effect? Is that constantly ringing in your ears? Is this how you think of him and in his heart for you? My prayer is that it would become so increasingly today. Here's the next one, third. Joy cannot be stolen by trials. You might let it be, but it cannot be necessarily stolen by trials. Listen to this. All too often, God's people fall into the trap of believing that joy and trials are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. You can have one or the other. We fall into that trap. That's a lie. To be in a trial is to surrender joy, we sometimes think. In fact, we might even define trials as a time of the absence of joy. To be to have joy 
we often believe, wrongly, is to be free of trial. This is not how the Bible talks about it. On the contrary, James, for instance, says, trials are not only compatible with joy. Think of your trials, Grace. Think of the hard things that you have endured, maybe even this morning or this this week, and certainly in the last year. Think of them. How often have you bought into the lie that those trials are stealing your joy? They don't have that power. God hasn't given it to them. Not only, as we'll see in James here as I read it, not only are trials and joy compatible, rightly endured, faithfully endured, they add to our joy. That's crazy talk. Well, listen to this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Whoa. Count it all joy. (laughs) All joy. How much joy? All joy. Count it all joy when you face trials, meet trials of various kinds. For it tells us why. And, and this, this I'll unpack more later. But for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be per- perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Trials bring joy. Not only is it not, not only are trials not incompatible with joy, they bring joy, this verse tells us, and that they produce something greater than the temporary deprivation of comfort. Okay, what does that mean? Kids, you'll get this. How many of you have parents that have tried to get you to put some money into a savings account? Well, why do you why do you do that? One, to keep you from wasting it on dumb stuff like I did when I was your age. And two, because if you put it into a, a decent account, that money actually grows. You put in $10 and it gets more because they pay you interest. So, so here's how this works. It's like getting... Joy from investing $10 in the knowledge that it will yield a 1000 over time, perhaps. Kids, 10 bucks is a lot, right? So losing $10 hurts. You had it in your pocket, you had some bubble gum in mind maybe, or a video game or something, and you think, oh, I'm going to put this in the bank and I'm never going to see this again. It hurts a little bit, but not if you knew that in two weeks it would be $1,000. You still wouldn't like losing the 10 for two weeks, but how awesome is that to know that in, in two weeks, you get a 1,000. It doesn't work quite like that, just so you know, but something like that. Being aware of the much greater gain it will produce makes us glad, even in the midst of loss. And so we read, for instance, in Luke 6, 22, blessed, and the word blessed in the New Testament means happy. Happy are you when people hate you. What? Happy are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and when they spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man, on the count of Jesus. Happy are you when people mistreat you and bring you into a trial in the name of Jesus. And it goes further. Rejoice in that day. Be, be happy and rejoice in that day and leap for joy. <laughs> what are you talking about? Somebody hates you because of Jesus? Dance? That's not my... Normal response, is it yours? But it tells us why. Because, behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. First Peter, the entire book of the Bible is dedicated to rejoicing in obedience through trials. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ did this. He himself knew joy through the harshest trial of all. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, 
the forsaking of the Father, the taking on of him all of the wrath of God for all who would hope in him. Grace, the kind of joy, gladness, happiness, blessed, the satisfaction and contentment the Bible talks about cannot be taken by your trials. And so if you've let it, hear the word of the Lord. Not only that, though, not only can joy not be stolen by trials, this is important for you to hear. Joy and sorrow, the Bible tells us, can coexist. You can have both at the same time. So let me say what I mean by that. We are complicated people by God's design. We are, like God, capable of experiencing simultaneous, seemingly incompatible emotions. For that reason, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 6.10, that he wrote in that, that he and his fellow ministers of the gospel were, do you know it already? Sorrowful, sorrowful, sad, grieved, yet also rejoicing at the exact same time. This is so critical for, a life, for, for living a life of faith in a broken world. You have to get this. I have to get this. None of what I will say this morning, Grace, and some of you have known really hard times. Some of you have known really deep sorrow. Nothing that I will say this morning, that is, none of what the Bible teaches, is meant to suggest that there isn't a place for sorrow in the life of a Christian. In fact, we're commanded to mourn with those who mourn and and weep with those who weep and, and to be grieved over the sin of the world and the death that is there. So nothing I've said this morning, and or will say, nothing that the Bible teaches says that there's no place for sorrow in the life of a Christian. Only, get this, only that the joy of the Lord goes deeper than the deepest sorrow. You got to get that. You got to get that. If you haven't already, you, you will experience hardship in this life, deep, profound sorrow. But you have to do so in the knowledge, according to the word of God, that the joy of the Lord goes deeper than the deepest sorrow. Even as we mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, we never do so as those, as ones without hope. And therefore, we never do so without a foundation of joy that can never be swallowed up by pain, no matter how severe. And that leads to the next principle. One surprising reality of the Bible, at least surprising for me, is that it commands emotions. <laughs> you don't think of emotions as something you can choose. They're the result of what we believe or feel or experience. But I don't think of emotions necessarily as something you can choose. It might seem, it might seem counterintuitive, at least it does to me, to command something that we that we think of ourselves as having very little, if any, control over. How do, you, how do you tell somebody to feel a certain way? I mean, clearly Michigan State is the best football team out there, but I can't command you to rejoice in them. Can I? Can I would you? Can I do that? I don't think I can. And even if I did, I don't think you could o- obey. So, so what's up with that? Well, here's the thing. I don't fully understand it, but I do know that in the Bible, God does so without blinking. He does so unapologetically. The fifth biblical principle, then, is that joy is commanded. You, Grace Church, are commanded to have joy. Not only can it not be stolen by trials, not only is it compatible with suffering and sorrow, but you are commanded to have it. Psalm 31.23, love the Lord. You're commanded to feel this deep emotion called love. Love the Lord, all of you, his saints. Psalm 33, 8, let all the inhabitants of the world feel and then stand in awe and wonder of God. Psalm 64, 10, let the upright of heart exult. 
Psalm 42, 5, hope, hope, find hope, feel hope in God. Psalm 33, 2, give thanks, feel thankfulness and give it to the Lord. And for our purposes this morning, hear this, Grace. Those are just other emotions we're commanded to have. For our purposes, rejoice in the Lord, Psalm 97. And delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37. And shout for joy to God, Psalm 66, 1. And be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32, 11. In simplest terms, that means, again, that joy is not only not incompatible, not said there's like four negatives there. Joy is not only compatible with trial and sorrows, it is also not optional during trials and sorrow or at any other time. We are commanded to be a joyful people by the authority of God. We are commanded to rejoice and be glad. Grace rightly understood, hear this, this, (laughs) hear this, rightly understood, it is a sin to lack joy. Let that sink in for a second. Some of you are grumpy people. <laughs> Knock it off. By the authority of God, I tell you, it is a sin in a certain sense to lack joy, to not be a joyful people. I'm grumpy sometimes. That's a big deal, isn't it? Where you lack joy then, you must fight for it. Again, we'll see more about what that means in a bit, but for now, remember that God invites, and now we can expand that a little bit, he commands you to join him in his joy through Jesus Christ forever. Here's the next one. Joy ought never to leave us. So I think that's sort of embedded, but there are explicit texts that talk about this. If joy is commanded and to be ours through trial and alongside suffering, we might ask, how often? (laughs) I mean, I get that sometimes, right? But how often? How how regularly is that meant to be the case? How, How often does God command us To have joy. The sixth biblical principle, and the last under the first heading, is that there is a kind of joy that is able and meant to remain in us no matter what. Not only through trials and sorrow, but through all things. There is a kind of joy that ought never to leave us. So Paul wrote in Philippians 4.4, and and I'm just giving you a, a few examples of the passages that teach this kind of thing, but rejoice in the Lord Always, again, I say rejoice. We're right to ask how this could possibly be in a busted world like this, but we're wrong to miss that the Bible does in fact teach it. The joy of the Lord ought to always be with us. God invites, and as we saw, even commands us to join him in his joy through Jesus forever beginning now. <laughs> awesome. All right, so that that was the nature of joy, God in the Bible. God is a joyful God. Joy cannot be stolen by trials. Joy and sorrow can coexist. Joy is commanded. Joy ought never to leave us. In grace, with all that, we know that our joy in God delights God. That's awesome. So having seen a number of biblical descriptions of the nature of joy, then let us consider the source. I hope you're thinking, okay, that's cool, Pastor Dave. I'm, I'm on board. I, I mean, I don't, I don't like to be sad. <laughs> I don't, I don't like to lack joy. So here's your question, right? You're all thinking it. It's for, where do I get that? <laughs> where does that come from? What, what is the source of that kind of joy? If all those things are true, I want it. Give me, give me some of that. I, I will. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. 
I'm glad you get this. At least I'll tell you where it can be found. Given the nature of the joy I've described, I, I hope, whether you came in with this or not, you're finding an increasing welling by the power of the Spirit, a desire for that kind of joy at its most foundational level. So, so where do we get it? How do we get it? At its most foundational level, all joy comes to us, even to us as sinners, as an undeserved blessing of God. Joy is a gift of God, all of it. Nehemiah 12, 43, God had made them rejoice with great joy. You might wonder, how can God command emotion? Well, the answer is because he gives it. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> You're not smiling, so I don't think you get it. <laughs> I mean, you think, how can you command me to do that? And the answer is because I'll give it to you. I love you. It's God. Nehemiah twelve forty three. God had made them rejoice with a great joy. Psalm fifty one twelve. Read, restore to me. Pray this prayer. King David prayed this. You pray this. Where is this joy found? We ask God for it, and He'll give it. Restore to me the. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David knew where, where it was lacking, he needed to fight for it. And how do you fight for it? You go to the one who gives it. That's God. Psalm 92.4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad. <laughs> you have made me glad by your work and the work of your hands. By them I sing for joy. You have done that, God. Romans 15.13, just so you know, it's not only an Old Testament concept. May the God of hope, this is Paul's prayer because he knows that if the Roman churches to whom he is writing are going to get this, if they get this joy, get this kind of joy that can't be stolen or robbed, it's compatible with sorrow and commanded and to be with us always. Paul knows this and so he prays this. May the God of all hope fill you with joy. If you're going to get it, it's going to be because God fills you with it. It's a gift from God. Every ounce of joy grace, every ounce of joy that has ever been experienced has been a gift from God. Interestingly, if you read through scriptures, and this was another thing that I was fairly surprised to find. Another one was that Isaiah is almost the most joyful book of the Bible. I, I, didn't, I didn't expect that, at least in terms of the number of occurrences of happiness and joy and gladness. It's in Isaiah. But interestingly, if you read through the Bible, you'll find that virtually every kind of joy that God gives, he gives to both non-Christians and to Christians. I was surprised to find that. One pastor noted that there, he categorized them. I think it's helpful. He calls it seven. Maybe there's another way to say eight or four or whatever. But he noted seven kinds of joy found in the Bible. And only one of them, which we'll get to in a little bit, only one of them is exclusive to Christians. It, it happens to be the deepest, longest lasting, most profound kind of joy. But of the seven types of joy found in the Bible, six are explicit, six of the seven are explicitly said to exist in both Christians and non-Christians. In other words, by God's hand, joy often comes to Christians and non-Christians alike through a fruitful harvest or a close relationship or the music of a skilled artist, or the laugh of a child. Joy comes from God. It is a gift from God, and it is not exclusive to Christians, even though there is a certain kind that is. Here's the next one, eighth. Joy comes from walking uprightly. The Bible talks like that. Whether you're a Christian or not, the Bible teaches that there is a kind of joy that 
comes from walking in uprightness. The Proverbs are filled with this over and over and over. Proverbs 10, 28. The hope of the righteous brings joy. And then conversely, but the expectation of the wicked, the expectations of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 12, 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Proverbs 21, 15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to the evildoers. Psalm thirty-two, eleven: Be glad and be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous! Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So, one significant reason then why you might not be experiencing joy is sin. If you are not walking as God intends, your joy will be under constant assault. Or like other passages in the Bible say, if you walk among sinful people, if your main friends or the people you're mainly around are constantly sinning against you and against God, your joy will be constantly assaulted. If you're a mean person, it's harder to have joy when people despise you. If you're a thief, it's harder to have joy when you are constantly worried about being jailed. If you are a liar, kids, if you, if you lie to your parents, it's harder to have joy when you're always worried about getting busted by them. If you disobey God, it's harder to have joy when guilt is always crouching close by. That's a constant teaching of the Bible. If you're a bad judge, even if you're a non-Christian, it's harder to have joy when the people despise your injustice. Let us be a people who seek joy in the Lord wherever he has given it to us, wherever it may be found, and in part that means through walking uprightly. Here's the next one, and this is where we break. Uh, the rest the rest of the sermon, the last several principles, are all about the kind of joy, the deepest kind of joy, the longest lasting kind of joy, the most profound kind of joy, the kind of joy we were most made for that's reserved exclusively for those whose hope is in Christ. So here's the heading. Fullness of joy comes only in the Godhead through Jesus. So again, all of that leads us to the ninth biblical principle. The fullness of joy, the kind that we were most foundationally made for, comes only in the Godhead and only through Jesus. God invites us to join him in his joy through Jesus forever And these last few principles get us to the highest joy. Fullness of joy comes only through the Godhead. That is, hear this, we struggle with this. I struggle with this. Kids, you struggle with this because you learn to struggle with this from your parents who struggle from this. Get this. Full, everlasting joy is not ultimately found through God, but in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me say that again. Full, everlasting joy is not ultimately found through God, but in God. The reason so much of our joy is so fleeting is because we seek it in fleeting things. Don't do that. (laughs) Psalm 1611, in your presence with you, God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand, that is in fellowship with God, are pleasures forevermore. That's the only place they're found. Isaiah 24, 14. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. It is in God, in his majesty, 
Habakkuk 3.18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. Now, now we might get this. I love how this is worded. It doesn't say, and you can do this, you can take joy in your salvation, but it doesn't say I will take joy in the salvation of my God. That, that's simple. You should do that. I will take joy in this. I'll be glad because I'm saved. You should do that. But that's not what it says. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See the difference? It's rooted in God himself. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God, to be a Christian, to live within God's kingdom, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jude one twenty four to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy in that presence of glory to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Let me say it again. Same thing, different words. God is not the source of joy, everlasting eternal, unshakable joy, mainly in that he's the owner of all things that you might want for joy. He is the source of joy, unshakable, eternal, unending joy, mainly in that he is infinitely glorious. The greatest joy God offers is not his stuff, but himself. The problem, once again, as Psalm 32 one says, is that this highest joy in God comes only to those whose sins have been washed away. Remember I said the fullness of joy comes only in the Godhead, but there's a second part to that clause, or a second clause to that ver- that statement, through Jesus. So there's a problem. That, that joy is for us in God. We were made for it, but it only comes, as Psalm 32.1 says, to those whose sins have been washed away. Blessed, it says, Psalm 32.1, blessed, happy, joyful, glad, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That kind of joy comes to those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, how do we get that? How do we get the highest joy of fellowship with God through, co- through covered sin? Luke 2, 10 and 11 gives new meaning to Christmas. This verse that you put on your card that the kids say every Christmas It gives us an answer to that question in a way maybe you didn't quite see. Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. How do we get in on this for which we were made? The the joy of the Lord in the Lord forever and ever and ever. Behold, I bring good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the Psalm 32, one kind of Savior, the one who will cover all of our sins to reconcile us to God, who is Christ the Lord. Fullness of joy comes only in the Godhead, but that only through forgiveness purchased by Jesus on the cross. And so now we're starting to see the fullness of the main point to the sermon. God invites us to join him, commands us to join him in his joy through Jesus forever. Here's the next one. They're quick from here on out. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Where do we get it? We're in the source category. It's a gift from God. It's found in God through Jesus. Here's the next one. It's a fruit of the Spirit. To press even further on this unique joy found in God, only through faith in Christ, the ninth principle is that this joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's produced in you. 
The Spirit lives in all Christians and continually works to produce joy in us. The most straightforward passage is Genesis 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Immediately, the Holy Spirit goes to work on us. We are saved and forgiven, not because we deserve it, not because we're righteous, but because Jesus is. So immediately, we're declared not guilty on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, but then God starts to make us righteous. The Spirit comes in us and makes us into what we were made to be. And what are some? what is some of that? What are we made to be? Love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Among the things that the Spirit produces in the people of God is joy. The Holy Spirit is the source of highest joy for all who hope in Jesus. Here's the next one. Joy comes to God's people through God's blessing. I put a ton of verses down in this. I'm only going to say one. This is probably the most obvious. This is the one where maybe you most easily feel joy. One of the most obvious principles. If I ask you to write down what does the Bible say about joy, I'm guessing whatever else was on your list, probably this is on it. It comes from God to God's people through God's blessing. Here's one that I just I loved reading this this week. The temple was being rebuilt. Ezra, the exiles had been brought back. Ezra 3, 11 to 12, and all the people shouted with a great joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Many shouted aloud for joy. They had experienced wandering and dispersion and were being brought back together. The blessing of God, it was countless blessings of God that took place to make that happen. They shouted aloud for joy. The Bible is literally filled with descriptions of God's people rejoicing at God's Blessing. Here's the next one. This one was surprising. Isaiah, I think, was the book in which the most joy references were found. I think the most references overall on a particular principle, though, is this one. Joy comes to God's people through God's people. Would you have thought that? Where is the most consistent, at least the most named source of joy for God's people in the Bible? It is God's people. God's joy comes to God's people through God's people. The Apostle Paul says this over and over and over and over. Let me read just one example, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. For what is our hope? This is Paul writing along with his co-laborers in the gospel. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What's going to give us the most joy, he says. This is Paul asking, What's going to give us the most joy when Jesus returns? Here's his answer. It's you. (laughs) It's you, people of God in Thessalonica. For you are our glory and our joy. That's that's a big, big deal. This means at least two things. Grace, would you listen carefully to these two things? It means that if you want joy, the kind that comes through Christ in the Godhead, especially the highest kind, that, that highest kind of joy, You need to be among God's people. Let me say that a few different ways. You cannot stay away from the gathering of the saints and find the joy of the Lord. You cannot be sporadic in your attendance and participation in Christian fellowship and find this joy. You can't. Are you struggling to be joyful? If so, I invite you to consider whether or not you have really given yourself to the people of God as God has called you to. But there's a second thing this means. It's not just the gathering. It's just, it's not just a bunch of people who are Christians getting together to talk about the weather or the Vikings. 
It's not just the gathering of Christians through which God gives this kind of joy, but the gathering of Christians around the mission and purposes of Jesus. The deep, deep joy that comes to God's people through God's people is the product of laying our lives down together for one another in the mission of God, in the advancement of the gospel. Do you want great joy? Give yourselves increasingly to your church, this this church, the church, the universal church, and the mission to which God has given us. Here's the next one, second to last, 13. Joy comes from belief in the glorious promises of God. We've already seen this. I've already shared a bunch of promises of God with you. I've preached whole sermons on this already through in Genesis and, and before. So this next to last principle is, is 10 sermons, if I wanted to do it that way. But because I've already given several, I just want to read one, one passage, a few verses, that I think captures the, the, the joyful, eternal, unshakable promises of God better than almost any other passage. I want to give you one passage filled with promises, and it is the kind of promise that if we believe this, we can have the kind of joy that cuts across whatever we may face. Here it is, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be, remember, happy is, glad are, Blessed be is another word for happy. Happy is another word for joy. Blessed be, joyful are, happy is the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you always always like passages on joy that begin with the joy of the Lord. God is happy. Blessed, happy, glad, joyful is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm about to drop some joy on you, and it's rooted in the joy of God himself. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, he made us, Joy is a gift from God. It comes ultimately through Christ. That was a gift that God gave us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Sorrows come in your way later this this week, maybe, or this month, or this year, or this decade. Something really hard, really sad. It's going to be a big trial. How, How can you, Pastor Dave, tell me that I need to have joy even in that, and even a kind of joy that grows through that. How is that possible? $10, $1,000. Here it is. Because even in that, that's bad, that's hard, we'll weep with you, we'll mourn with you, but in that, remember this. Here's a promise of God. Even through that, you have a promise that God has made to you that there's an inheritance for you. Whatever you lose on earth, Whatever is taken from you in pain and suffering here, you have an inheritance in Jesus that is imperishable. It's undefiled and undefilable. It's unfading. It'll never get less. And it is kept in heaven to you. It is secured there, not by like some lockbox or some, some you know, rink-a-dink alarm system, but by God himself, <laughs> by God himself, by God's power, Those things are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be received at the last time. In this, whatever comes, grace, you rejoice, verse 6. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, life's hard, sad things happen. If necessary, you'll endure those. But you rejoice in this so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Grace. Though you do not now see him, you will one day, you don't now. You believe in him, and here it is again, rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, come what may, filled with glory, as you await the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The nature of the joy promised in this passage, and many passages like it, is sufficient to overwhelm even the darkest night, even the sharpest pain, even the severest trial. And forgetting it, forgetting that, is why it seems like trials and sorrows and other things can steal our joy. Not because they can, but because we forget these promises. And so to go back again to the earlier illustration, it's like forgetting or or never even knowing the $1,000 that is a, a year out from your $10 loss. There is... There is simply no joy in just losing ten bucks. You've probably done you've probably done that. You just lost ten dollars. That's no fun. There's no joy there. There's no joy in losing ten dollars without a greater payoff coming later. In the same way, Grace, there's no joy in getting persecuted for your faith or getting sick during sick with some kind of sickness with some kind of faithfulness in this life or acting justly, you act rightly, everyone around you is acting wrongly, you act rightly to the detriment of your comfort. There's no joy in any of those things without a heavenly, eternal reward awaiting those who do. Grace, the biblical promises, get this, think of the sorrow you've endured, think of the sorrow you're anticipating. The biblical promises contain 100 billion times more joy power than all the money in the world, than all the health in the world, than all the mended relationships in the world. hundred billion billion. A hundred hundred billion billion, right? God invites us, commands us to join him in his joy through Jesus forever. And that joy is found in the unshakable promises that Jesus' death and resurrection secured perfectly for all who would hope in him. So here, here's my conclusion. And my last number fourteen. I want to make. I want to. I want to end by highlighting the lifespan. You've heard it. I've said it several times already. But what was implied, I want to make explicit: the lifespan of the joy that is in the Lord Jesus. Joy will be ours fully in the fullness of the kingdom. That's the principle. That's the fourteenth last one. Joy will be ours fully in the fullness of the kingdom. We've talked a lot about joy. It's a bunch of Big promises I've made to you, big principles, 13 of them so far. None of us are fully experiencing anything I've said already. It might seem like wishful thinking. The Bible's not silent even on that. Grace, we now live in the unfinished kingdom of God. Therefore, there, there's simply a measure. It's not all there yet. There's a measure. It's, it's even a great measure, but it's only a measure of the joy that is available to us right now. And yet God's word is clear that only once but certainly once the kingdom is complete, will our joy be full. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It never ends. Isaiah 5111, and the ransomed of the Lord, those who are hoping in Christ, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads when we get to the fullness of the kingdom of God. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of man is with God, and God with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Grace God has invited you, he's commanded you to join him in his joy through Jesus forever. Let's let's do that in faith in a new way today. Let's be a people who believe God in his unshakable <coughs> eternal joy promises. And let's fight and fight and fight and fight until we're in it. And so, dads, here's here's the deal. This isn't a normal Father's Day sermon, but it is perhaps what we need most. Because in in it is what our kids need most from us. More than anything else, they need us to have our joy rooted in and built upon the joy of the Lord through Jesus Christ. And they need us to share that with them. All of the good things that you've done, and I know you, I know most of you, you've done good things. All of the good things you have done and might do for them, of all of them, having and sharing unshakable eternal joy in Jesus is what makes us good dads. Give them everything else but deprive them of that, you're not a good dad. Give them that, deprive them of everything else, and you are. May it be so today. So on the back, we, we have a book for you. It's called The Things of Earth. It's a way to help you maximize your joy in God uh, for the sake of the generations. Re- read this. Know how to live in this life better in the joy of the Lord for the sake of your children and your children's children.